Welcome to Listening to Paint Dry with Mike and Dan, a podcast about the art and hobby of miniature painting. I'm Mike. Today I'm flying solo because Dan has quite a crazy schedule, but we'll be back together in a couple weeks with another episode. A few programming notes for today. First of all, we're getting back to our original plan, which is having one-hour-long episodes in order for you to be able to paint one hour along with us. Lately, we've kind of gotten out of hand. We've been having some two-hour episodes. We figured what we'll do is when we have longer interviews, we'll go back through, break them in half, put them out as two separate episodes. That way, you at least have an hour of painting to listen to as opposed to us turning on for an hour and then listening to an hour-long or an hour-long-plus interview. The second programming note is that we're going to be moving to a production schedule of every other Friday. So starting after today, which is, well, this one will come out on Saturday just because I'm running a little late, they'll be out every other Friday. So two weeks from yesterday, you'll have another new episode with both Dan and I and an interview from somebody in the industry. We'd also like to take a moment to ask our listeners if they could help out the podcast by spreading the word anytime they get the opportunity to. We're doing okay on our own with about 3,000 downloads and very little advertising independently, plus throw in no cons this year, so it's a little bit difficult to kind of get the word out and get stickers to people, etc. So anything that listeners could do to help spread the word would be much appreciated. Now over the next couple weeks, you'll notice we're going to be upping our social media game. Um, We're going to increase the amount of Instagram and Facebook posts as well as we have joined the dreaded Twitter. And you can follow us on Twitter at, yep, wait for it at dry painting um you could also just search for listening to paint dry that'll come up as well with those notes out of the way we'd like uh, to thank everybody for their support please if you have any questions comments or concerns want to tell us what you're working on you know you could uh, throw a question towards us so we could ask our artists in the future just let us know at listening to paint dry at gmail.com you can also follow us at facebook and instagram on listening to paint dry as well as now twitter at dry painting like, follow, subscribe anywhere you get your podcast. We are on over 100, 100 apps apparently now uh, with our podcasting service. So today we have an excellent interview uh, with uh, probably one of the most foremost YouTubers out there. Uh, he is single-handedly responsible, I believe, for upping a substantial number of people's game in the painting community. His video series, Hobby Cheating, Raging Reviews, PMP Monthly Review, Warhammer Weekly, and an interview with Artist Series have netted him well over 40,000 subscribers. Please welcome artist, teacher, and all around just awesome person, Vince Venturella. Well, Vince, welcome to the show. It's so glad that you could join us today. Yeah, thanks, man. I'm very glad to be here. You know, and I appreciate you taking the time. That's one of the things that, that has always been awesome about interacting with you is that no matter what you're doing, you take the time to, I, I've seen it when you've talked to me and other people. So I know a lot of us out there in the miniature painting world really appreciate that, that you do take the time to communicate and hang out with your fans a little bit. <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, I try, I just, I like hanging out with people and talking about, you know, miniature painting and hobby and stuff like that. It's not, I don't see it as really doing some great service or something. It's just I genuinely enjoy it. I mean, who wouldn't want to sit around and talk about a hobby and painting and stuff? That's just fun, right? So there you go. Exactly. Exactly. Now, um, a couple of years ago, uh, I took a class with you on freehand painting, and you had talked about uh, you had kind of switched mentality. I guess now it would be five years, but three years previous to that, um, that you went from just being kind of a gamer to wanting to be a more of a competitive painter and a better painter. And I wanted to kind of ask again in the context of the show, what prompted that change? 
Yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. It's hard to say. Like, I don't know if there was one particular moment, if there was one thing that really clicked. Uh, I was painting a lot, and I thought I was painting pretty decently. And I wanted to know how good I actually was. And I uh, decided that I wanted to try to take it more seriously. I mean, it's sort of like a steps thing there, right? Like, at first I said, well, I want to get better. So what are the steps I need to do to get better? And so I started, you know, reading everything I could, watching every video I could, studying stuff, really looking at people's art, learning about who was out there and who was really good. And then I said, OK, well, I want to know how good I actually am and get some really good feedback. And so I I looked around for uh, contests in the U.S. and found basically everything that was out there. And so started painting for those contests and i think ultimately you know i couldn't tell you exactly where the turn happened you know it's it's not like i sat down one day and had this lightning bolt epiphany of like oh here i'm just gonna paint armies and then tomorrow i want to do display painting or competition painting or something like that i think i'm just kind of a naturally competitive person um if i'm if i am invested in something then i want to be very good at it and I think that this, more than anything in my life, miniature painting spoke to me in a way that nothing else previous really had. Uh, I, it's, I've, I have a lot of hobbies. I have a lot of things I enjoy. And I have a lot of things I've, I've you know, sort of done both personally and professionally. But this uh, it really grabs and holds my attention in a way nothing else does. So between that and just wanting to honestly test myself uh i started competing more and that that was really kind of what it did it and then what made me want to compete more after say the first one was getting close but failing doing pretty good but failing failing was the most important thing i did in the early part of competing because it lit the fire in me that said if i'm gonna like oh i can do this i might have failed this time but i won't fail next time so there you go. No, that's awesome. No, that, that's nice to hear that, you know, that everybody fails, you know, and that's that's all that's hopefully we learn from our mistakes and get better from it. And kind of along those lines, that's a good little segue. So um, last year at the Nova Open, uh, you took an opportunity when I asked you to critique a piece I did. And I'll post this on our Instagram so the listeners can kind of see it. It was two uh, a mirror image of two girls looking at each other, one light and one dark. Um, you gave me some awesome feedback. Some of it, you know, as, a, as somebody personally invested, it was a little hard to hear, but you know, that's such as life, right? You know, like I, I would rather have the hard to hear it stuff than not, you know what I mean? I don't, I don't do well with sugarcoating. So when somebody gives you a, a critique, what, is it a good idea to go back and work on that figure? Is it a good idea to tr just try to implement that in something new? Kind of how, how does that process work for you? Cause I struggled with that cause I actually wound up redoing that piece. And so what, uh, how do you approach something along those lines? Yeah. I mean, look, <clears throat> I'm going to be the first one to tell you that getting feedback from judges can sometimes be really hard. So I'm not going to sit here and pretend like it's super easy. Uh, I myself have 
And I think feedback largely breaks down for me when I hear it into two categories. OK, so category one is I know this isn't the exact question you asked, but I want to try to help people out. Sure. The first thing I'll say is when you get feedback, take it. Listen. OK, like it's really, really, really hard to listen but do it if you at all can. Now, the second thing I'll say is I divide feedback into two categories. So the two categories are things that might look better on this piece, but are kind of subjective, okay? And things that are directly pointing out mistakes that I have made on this piece and should correct both now and going forward, okay? That's how I divide the two things. Okay. And after, and, and it's really easy when you're starting out to think everything you thought of is the best and everything falls in that subjective category. And you don't know what you're talking about, Mr. or Mrs. Judge. Look, I know exactly what I wanted. I wanted it to be like that. That was my artistic intention. Yeah. Well, my best advice is in the beginning, treat everything as though you don't know what the heck you're doing and everything should be stuff you should execute on, right? Because chances are it's more likely to be that than the other. Even now when I get feedback, it's sometimes, I mean, I've given feedback to people now on thousands and thousands of, of pieces, both in formal competitions and other ways. I mean, I've probably judged more individual pieces in detail than most other judges just because I do it once a month and review like 80 to 100 submissions a month right in the PMP, which is a nice luxury. Like, it's really wonderful to be able to do that. So should you act on it immediately? My general answer is no, you should not. I know that's going to sound weird based on what I just said. Um, if that piece isn't going to go and compete again, okay? If that piece is going to go to another competition, then yes, Go and change everything that you think fits into that secondary category of stuff that was done incorrectly and should be fixed on this piece and every piece going forward. And if it means you've got to take apart your piece, if it means you've got to bust things, if it means you've got to repaint things, if it means you've got to spend another 50, 60 hours, that's what you do. That's the right answer. Now, if it's either highly subjective stuff, and I will get that sometimes from judges, and by the way, Judges will often tell you when the stuff they're telling you is highly subjective because they'll be like, well, <clears throat> you know, I felt like this foliage could have extended a little more over here, but I don't know. OK, when you hear that, that's like eh, it's maybe subjective, right? When you when they say, OK, here's why your composition is incorrect. You put the figure back here, which draws the eye to the wrong place. So there's a standard compositional triangles and you're way outside of it. And you're not balancing it in any way that's interesting, right? So, like, <clears throat> you know, you're not pulling a Monet here who would purposefully use imbalanced composition to draw attention to the other side of the frame. That's not what you're doing. You're just using bad composition, right? <laughs> so you, you, you fix it right. if, if you're going to compete with the piece again. If you're not, if that's it, if that's all it's going to be, if it's going to be that one piece and it's for you and you alone, no, I think you I think you work on something else and you try to internalize that that feedback. Maybe write it down. That's yeah, that's helpful. Well, you know, I, I try to write down 
everything anybody tells me that's so important because with so much going on at a convention and such that you have a tendency to lose stuff right um so and i do want to make sure we understand like when i said hard to hear it wasn't that i didn't accept the feedback it was just you know like when you when you invest time into a piece you get personal you know you it like hurts he says no personal. man there's no need to explain it all it hurts a lot I'm not let's not sugarcoat this, Mike. Like I saw the piece. It was clearly a very emotional piece for you. Like it's a, it's emotional and it was a good enough piece that I will tell you right now, sitting here, that was what? Not was that last year Nova or a year two years a year, year ago? Last, Nova? last year Nova. Okay. Either way, it is one of the few pieces I remember from last year Nova. Right? It right. had a significant impression on me. Like I can I can conjure the image of it directly in my head at this point. Which tells me, as I told you at the time, that it's successful emotionally, right? Which in the end is kind of like a lot of the point of art, <laughs> right? Right. Like, and, and you, <laughs> you're absolutely right. And that's, and that's when I, Dan and I had a long conversation about this is I had a very – the artistic side and the competitive side in me fought for a very long time after that because <laughs> to me that piece for artistic wise was a huge win you know i got a, a lot of conversation about it etc and you know i got pulled aside by the judges and they said they had like an hour-long conversation about art and then but then it didn't do as well as i had hoped it would do i i, I can't say expected it to do because i i don't really have expectations it was more of a hope um and so you know it was hard to kind of resolve that for for a while for me and actually probably delayed the podcast coming out because <laughs> I was kind of in my own stupor, you know. No, but, it's fair. I mean, look, here's the bottom line of that piece, and it is an interesting discussion, which we can break into here if you want. I would love to. Which is you had a piece that emotionally was strong, right? And uh, artistically, if it's to be defined, if art is to be somewhat defined is the ability to emotionally impact your audience, right, with the thing that you've created, um, it was successful in that regard because it did that. It very much did that, right? However, technically, the piece had a lot of opportunity to grow, right? Well, that's, that's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> no, I just mean, like, it, I think you know that. I, I don't I don't think you were I don't think I'm telling you anything that was a revelation to you, even at the time. No, right? not at all. Mm -hmm. Like you can look at your painting and go, yes, this painting is good, but it wasn't it wasn't great on the level that you perhaps would have wanted it to be. Right. There was there was opportunity for for growth there on the technical merits. Right. Certainly. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> excuse me. So when I look at that. What that tells me is that's kind of one of the challenges of competition, right? Mm -hmm. and, and here's what I mean by that. If you're if you're an artist and um, you're trying to you're trying to make a living on your art, okay? Then all that matters is how your pieces connect with the zeitgeist of the audience that is viewing them because those are people who are going to buy your stuff who are going to talk about you who are going to review you who are going to you know talk you up and create the word of mouth that's going to make your art pieces sell yeah if you're doing a gallery show or something like that right you get what i mean yes absolutely 
<clears throat> and so that's why, you know, I think that you can you can have a much broader sweep and, and different levels of technical achievement is. But if the emotional impact is there, then that can often be the success and so on and so forth. Now, on the flip side, if you go to a judged competition artistically, OK, uh, and, and this is true in any artistic medium, right? If you're a singer, well, and you sing and people like it, they buy tickets and they download your songs and stuff like that. And the audience is the judge. That's it. That's all you need, right? But if you go to a singing competition, if you're on American Idol or something, is that still a show? I don't know. I don't watch reality television, but you know what I mean. I, I don't either. Yeah, no, it might, it might be. <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about. Well, then what matters is ostensibly the panel of judges or, again, I guess the people watching the show who are dialing in and keeping you alive. I don't know how that show works. But my point is, is that one of those two things matters still, right? So in this case, both mattered when you enter a judged competition. And, you know, they're pretty transparent about the rules that like the technical forms part of their basis for evaluation, right? Like that's kind of in the in the terms of service. Exactly. Doesn't, yep. Doesn't mean it's the only thing that matters, but it means it's like a thing that matters. And I think that the dream is when you are able to achieve like artistically and technically at the same time something that has incredible emotional relevance. Right. And that's a journey in both places. Because you have to be able to improve your technical skills, but you also have to be able to be comfortable and open up emotionally and be in touch enough to recognize how to how to bring the emotion out of the pieces. Right. So I think both of those things are are a journey you go on independently. And I think you can have one without the other, but you can also build toward one while not having the other or or while having one of the others locked up tight and still building game on the other one. That's fine. No, and that's it. You you've summed up kind of the kind of the whole reckoning that I kind of went through and, you know, trying to like, I don't know, it was kind of my, for lack of a better phrase, come to Jesus moment <laughs> and, and kind of understanding that art is subjective, even on a technical level, it's somewhat subjective, you know, like the, that's, you know, you have movements like the whole F smoothness thing from Banshee and then you have kind of sure. this, those people that are totally technically superior with the smoothness, et cetera. And so even at those levels, it's subjective. But um, things that have helped me, though, are things like listening, like hearing critiques, listening to you, listening to your videos, et cetera. So I wanted to say thank you because I don't want to make this about my piece because, you know, <laughs> water under the bridge. But I appreciate I think it's a fantastic um, microcosm that a lot yeah. of us went through because it was it Mike, it really was a great piece. Right. And thank you. I think that we all are going to have pieces like that. All of us who try to do some display painting are eventually going to have that happen. I had the same thing happen to me. OK, where you have a piece you're deeply emotionally invested in. You've worked your took us off for it right and it says something about you and it you've, you've you've like this is it this is the piece i've put a lot of myself into that and then it does nothing right and you get a lot of feedback and it's like well you didn't do this you didn't do this you can improve this you can improve this and it hurts man it really hurts uh so i've i've been there in in your shoes believe me me 
And I think what it's got to do is it's got to light that fire. That's that's the only like your only reasonable response has got to be to to come back, you know, even harder to think about what you you didn't do. And I think that kind of persistence is ultimately what's going to is going to sort of breed success, whatever that means in some form of like competition painting. That is a that kind of persistence is a better predictor of success than any kind of artistic skill or talent. Well, I'm going to keep my fingers crossed one day when we have another convention, <laughs> if we ever have conventions again, right? <laughs> oh, boy, you ain't kidding. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a crazy world. But, uh, you know, um, one of the things I was going to ask you along kind of along those same lines, uh, persistence. Um, the other kind of P is practice. And so one of the things I found that I struggle with is trying to figure out how to practice painting miniatures and what I kind of mean by that is that you know I watch a video um, usually I'll watch it one time through uh, gather everything I need and then watch it again and try to paint along with it um, etc I can never get kind of the results that the artist is doing so I know that it's going to take time outside of it how do you I, I don't know I best way to ask how do you self-evaluate when you practice how do you know when you're getting, you know, like, how do you know when you're getting a technique down, et cetera? Does that, uh, does that question make sense? I apologize if it does. It totally kind of, does. Yeah. Okay. No, it totally does. I mean, the first thing I'll say is obviously remember when you're watching something, I, I know you know this, Mike, but just to say it to the audience, sure. remember when you're watching somebody do something on a video, that's the 50th or a hundredth or a thousandth time they've done it. So if it's your second time doing it, don't expect the same results. <laughs> Quick side note, uh, I come from a very Italian family, Venturella. Uh, every Sunday, my grandmother would make the ragu, would make a sauce. It would take like 16 hours to make. It was my favorite thing in the world. I cannot eat any Italian food to this day or like sort of red sauce, southern Italian, Sicilian food to this day because all of it pales in comparison to my grandmother's food. When my grandmother passed away, she gave her recipes to my wife. My wife made my grandmother's sauce. I ate it, and she was like, what do you think? I said, yeah, it's okay. You did all right. <laughs> and and she was, like, insulted. And I looked at her, and I said, if you're insulted, then you're out of your mind. Because my grandma made that sauce every day for 50 years. 50 years. 50 times a year for 50 years. She made that sauce 2,000 500 plus times you've made it once did you really think you were such a culinary genius that you were going to surpass that amount of effort 2500 times 16 hours per attempt right no i said get out of here you want to get good <laughs> at it keep making it maybe in 10 or 20 years you'll get something decent Right. And she didn't make it again. Never did. OK, because in the end, she didn't want to live with that sort of Damocles over her head. Right. But that's my point. If you want to get like if you look at Lan's non-metallic metal or Kirill Kanaev's or somebody like that and you look at their effect and you think that's that's beyond reason. Well, yeah, it's because they've done that. Five hundred times, a thousand times, ten thousand times they've invested an order of magnitude above that. Two, tie, two orders above that in hours, right? Of course. So <clears throat> how do you practice? 
how do you practice? I think what you do, my advice, and how do you evaluate yourself, is I'm always trying to deliberate practice particular things. And I try to do it in quantities, never in just one. So like, okay, Mike, what's an example of something you worked on recently you saw in a tutorial? Hit me, hit me with an example. Um, Trevarian's Ogrid. I can't say the name. I'm so bad with the GW names. I was working on the flesh tones with. Uh, Perfect. Do you know what I'm talking about? I know exactly what you're talking about. Okay. So but I did. The, it has yeah, the I, Ogroid Myrmidon Masterclass. Yes. Yes. There you go. Perfect. Because I, but I had to do the other guy, the uh, one from the quest game, the because I didn't have the. There you go, Thaumaturge. So yeah, but I, I figured they would pull they same model pretty much. You yeah. know, what I mean, same yeah. flick. <laughs> yeah, similar similar muscle structure. So yeah, that works fine. Uh, okay. So you were trying the skin. What did you run into? Like walk um, me through what happened. Well, for the first is I the I was not I was not getting any gradients. Uh, I was kind of getting you know, like I no matter how much I glazed or blended uh i couldn't get a gradient or i couldn't and when i kind of got a little bit of one it was in the wrong place um and then i kind of struggled with uh, i don't know this may be actually a personal thing that i don't know how when people do reds on videos and because the skin is like kind of an orange brownish um I, i have a hard time seeing that on the video um and I, I think it's just my eyes. It's not like color blindness or anything like that. Everybody's got weird stuff. Um, I don't think it's just you, by the way. I think that is kind of true in general. Like, actually, the color red is just traditionally really hard to see and distinguish and, and actually get right on video. So, no, I don't. I think I think okay. you're actually in very good company there. Oh, OK. Well, cool. That, that's a, that, that's comforting for sure. So I was running into that and then um, paints turning chalky on me as I glazed him like made them like you know thinned them down etc and so like though especially the oranges um i had to substitute like kalahari orange for one of the colors he used and that you know that kind of turned though that's kind of where i struggle was like uh transitions and chalkiness and kind of pink you know controlling where transitions were gotcha gotcha yep yep so yeah exactly i think then it's good though you did the first you just did the first step of how i would tell people to practice right there so you're like what you did was self-identify where the challenges are. Right. You understand what I'm saying? Like you started and said, where am I having problems? Let me break this down. You didn't just go, I can't do this. Right. That's the first place people go wrong is they go, I can't do this. And they stop. You see what I mean by that? Yes. And I think that is your that's your that's your killer right there. Don't do that. Number one. (laughs) So like, you know, take the time, sit down and think about where are you specifically going wrong? I think then the next item you've got to do is you got to say, okay, so like, where am I running into these challenges? Okay, so Trevarian famously uses a lot of like very careful controlled glazes and thin layers and slowly builds a color. Right. Right. And so one of the things that I'll often do is I'll say, well, if I'm having trouble doing it with maybe that exact technique, maybe I try it with something different, right? So maybe instead what you try is maybe you attack, you, you kind of watch the video, you get a sense of the colors he's using, and then maybe you try to wet blend it out a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. And then you glaze from there. 
and you see if maybe that tackles it. Maybe you go a little bit to the airbrush to clean up afterward. Maybe you do some very distinct layering and then go to the airbrush to smooth out kind of Sergio Calvo style, right? right. So the point is maybe you kind of alternate. The other option is you paint it, you fail, and that's okay. Like you tried it in that method. Let's say you failed. I don't know for sure you did or not. I can't see the mini. Maybe it's perfectly <laughs> fine, and you're being way too hard on yourself. That's another possibility, by the by. No, I, I'm I'm comfortable saying, and not even on a critical sense. I'm I'm comfortable saying that it's it, it would fall in the fail category. I'm I'm okay with that. Okay. Like I, you know, I'm not. I got a, I got a big old drawer of failure. <laughs> that's all right. That's okay, yep. So then, and that, exactly, that's fine. That's going to happen sometimes. So then, here's my here's my answer. You fail once, and then what I would what I do is. I look at it and have tried my best to evaluate it honestly, right? And I do that by just trying to remove the the scales from my eyes. You know, I look at what I did. I compare it to whatever I was trying to do. And I say, okay, honestly, did this measure up? And I'll, I'll sometimes just bring up pictures of the kind of thing that I was trying to achieve and hold my piece next to it. And like that will kind of remove all illusions, right? If you look at a big picture in the same scale of somebody else's mini and then you hold yours next to it and you honestly evaluate it and it's going to be like your flaws are going to be visible pretty fast right right um so i think that's number one number two is number two is you then do it more so one of the tricks i would do is like if I wanted to kind of figure out that kind of skin blending, I would go figure out like I would paint an army, literally an army that is almost all skin. And I would do that on every one of the models in there. Okay. And I wouldn't take a ton of time on the rest of the models in there. That is to say, what I mean by that is like the elements of the models that aren't the skin. So maybe they have weapons and armor and those I kind of attack pretty in a pretty straightforward fashion. But I will take a long time on that skin on 30, 50, 100 models. I'll do that that skin blending 100 times. I'll try different mixes of mediums and flow improver and retardant and water and different orange paints to see if I can get rid of the chalkiness or what's going to blend better or what colors are going to look absolutely right. And by the way, on an army level, those little tiny changes aren't going to matter at all, right? Like you'll notice it piece to piece if you kind of hold one up next to the other. But when they're all together in a big force, they'll all look basically the same. It's close enough. And so I, when you do that 100 times, you're going to figure out where you go wrong because you just do it and then evaluate yourself and then do it and evaluate yourself and then do it and evaluate yourself, you know? Uh, the story I always tell is the comic book artist who I get watched a talk at like a wizard con who talked about how he couldn't paint, couldn't draw hands. And that was completely impeding his ability to work in the industry. So he sat down and drew a hundred hands a day for a hundred days in different positions. At the end of that hundred days, he was pretty darn good at drawing hands because he had drawn 10,000 hands. All right. So but I'm not telling you to paint 10,000 oigroid thermaturges. That might be a bit much, but like paint a lot more skin. Yeah. I'll say hands down, that's good advice. No, I'm oh. sorry. I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. <laughs> that's great. I love it. Yes, good fun. Yeah, I think you got to be honest, and then you just keep at it, right? You just keep doing the same thing, and then keep the evaluation rolling. Like there's a there is a great value to targeted, deliberate practice. 
if you're a football player, uh, no, let me say it this way. You're a golfer. That's an easy one. This is going to be very specific. We can be very specific with golf. You're a golfer and you want to be on the PGA. You're going to have a problem in your game somewhere. Maybe it's your short game. Maybe it's your hazard game. Maybe it's your long game. Maybe it's your driving game. Right. There's four places, at least there's many more, but obviously those are sort of the chief four where you can have significant problems. And what you're going to do is you're going to go work that one area that's a problem for you until it's better. There you go. Right. That's targeted, deliberate practice. You'll be if you've got a problem with putting, you're going to be out on the putting green every day, every day until you're better. That's it. Same uh, that, that is an excellent way to put it for sure. And, you know, for somebody like me who doesn't really have armies, cause I just, I used to game now. I just paint, you know, I do things. I backed like the bones Kickstarter and that's just a crap ton of miniatures to practice on. Right. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, a hundred percent when you've got stuff like that sent around, I think of all these people who have like, um, stacks and stacks of, of Kickstarter board games, you know, and bones and stuff like that. Like so many of us have shelves of shame from all this stuff. Those are just perfect practice stuff because they're relatively nice. You can get them out. If you fail, who cares? Board game's still perfectly playable. The bones piece is still there. You know what I mean? Like you weren't going to do anything else with it anyways. Any painted mini is better than any unpainted one. You can only serve to learn and to grow and to go and to do better because you tried it. Right. So why not? I'm trying to think of the best way to, to ask this question because I know that you've covered it a little bit, but kind of along those lines, what kind of challenges have you faced uh, when upping your painting game? Like what are the kind of things that you went through? Oh my gosh. I mean, feeling like a failure constantly and feeling like I will never be good enough to actually create anything of any value that I am not an artist, which I still don't know that I feel that I'm an artist. Uh, I struggle with that every day with feeling like I have no real inspiration uh, or sense of, of uh, artistic talent or what makes something good or bad uh, or what I want to do feeling like I'm, I'm completely like, like the muse has left um, mm. feeling like I, I can't get a stupid piece to work. And all I want this thing to do is work. And why won't this, dumb blend come together and you know so it sounds like you do battle with self-doubt for sure <laughs> all the yeah. time yeah all the time yeah that's but that's kind of you know it, your, your pain is reassuring for others though at some level because you know they see what you're i mean you're you paint you're you, exceptionally well. I mean, I, I, the fact that you don't consider yourself an artist is baffling to me, but especially I don't know. I, I, it's interesting to watch your videos because when you go all the way back and watch from the beginning and even then you were a great painter, just how far along, you know, was it God two forty three? Was that the most recent hobby cheating? Let's say sure. I don't know because I have them. <laughs> the, the reason I say I don't know is because one, I don't know when this is coming out to so when somebody's listening to it. So maybe when there's newer and yeah. two, keep in mind, I work like a month ahead. Okay. Right. Where I'm recording as, as I'm like recording and then going through the editing and then uploading and scheduling. So I never remember what numbers actually currently out or whatever. So somewhere around there. The color orange. <laughs> there you go. It's yes. The recent one. It's about orange. It's about orange. That's an excellent video, by the way. And actually there's one thing I was going to mention to you that you, uh, you had done the, the, 
a brush care video and I had mentioned something about in the comments about pink soap. But I think I use pink soap the same way you use like surfactant. I can't never say that word. Surfactant in a, yeah, in surfactant. A, yeah. A couple of drops in one of the rinse waters, and it I don't know. It takes pain out of everything. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's very, yeah. very good tool. I know. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Keep something in your rinse water is what I would say. I think a lot of people just keep their rinse water straight. I always keep a couple of drops of surfactant, or you can use yeah, you can use pink soap, or I actually. Uh, even like a drop of dish soap would be fine in there too. If, if you don't have either of those two things. So I will let you in on one secret that we do battle in this house over the pink soap because it, it will actually take out other types of stains from clothes and laundry. Ah. It's really weird. Like not only just paint, but like it took out grass stains from my son's, you know, I have a 16 year old who constantly destroys pants, but, um, you know, like so, all that kind of stuff. So, pink pink soap is a battle, and I actually had to go buy one of the big pump, <laughs> the big pump things, so I could use some too. <laughs> That's funny. But, um, so a little bit of a, a, a change of pace, because I know both of us are kind of econ- economics nerds. Um, and so one of the things I was very curious, um, is pricing in miniatures has a kind of it's an interesting thing for me because i know games workshop gets a lot of flack for the cost of their miniatures but honestly when you break them down besides character miniatures which i do which i'm kind of like whoa 40 bucks for what um but like when you talk about squads and things along those lines their pricing per miniature kind of averages out to about the same as privateer press or even metal miniatures from dark sword miniatures, et cetera, and things along those lines. Right. So I guess my question for you as somebody who is another, uh, kind of economics person, um, why with increased supply and increased demand, have we not really seen a price decrease in product? You know, usually typically you would see, as more people come to the market, more solution, more substitutions are available, et cetera, you'd see price come down. But it kind of seems like everybody's saying, oh, Games Workshop's charging this amount for this, so I can charge this too. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it, I thought, well, one, I think we are talking about a relatively free market. So that would be the first thing to ask. Right. Like, does, is the market being acted on by external forces? Because like, if you're going to talk about, you know, healthcare costs or uh, or something like that, obviously that has a market with a heavy amount of regulation. And so the market is being acted upon by all sorts of outside forces. Sure. I think in the case of miniatures, it's pretty free. It's like the the sort of, quote unquote, invisible hand of the market is kind of doing what it's doing here. Right. Right. In, in one of the truest senses. Why? So I think we do have a case where you have a uh, a market dominant force setting the standard, and that is giving cover for everyone else to charge something, even if their product isn't on the same quality. So the closest thing I could think of is probably somebody like Starbucks in the coffee market, mm-hmm. where... Starbucks represents a, a, I don't know if they actually are a plurality, but they seem, at least in my mind, to be a plurality force. They're certainly a very large force in the sort of coffee market, right? Like the quick quick service coffee market. Um, they have a premium price on their product, right? And they have opened the door to a lot of other smaller and regional chains to open up and say, well, we're going to do that. We're going to do a, you know, a, a similar premium 
high quality product and they'll charge the same amount, right? Now, whether their product is as high or is as low quality or whatever, or, you know, what is up to for discussion. Right. Uh, that's not to say that this market will remain stable forever. I think one of the things that keeps the market at, at sort of stable is price is price, right? It's not dependent on the uh, – a lot of people are like, why does it have to cost that much? It's just a little bit of plastic. Like, obviously, that's not how prices work. These are people right. who <laughs> just never apparently read any economics in their life. Like, the the – the components that go into making an individual model have almost zero to do. They could not have less to do with how much that thing costs, right? Right. Um, what what determines that its cost is is obviously a whole bunch of input factors, including the fact that like making the molds and making a product that is as high quality as what GW does make is still actually pretty rarefied. Uh, there aren't a lot of companies, even now, truly making plastics on their level. In fact, I don't know if there's really anybody who's yeah, completely I'm, on their level. No, I don't think there's a perfect substitute. No, I think I, I think I, I, they're kind of that that big dog in the in the in the field. You know what I mean? They're, I don't. I was trying to think about that earlier, and the only thing is subs like you have imperfect substitutions, things that would not that might satisfy your demand, but not a hundred percent at the same level as Games Workshop, right? You know, and yeah, that, I think like Kingdom Death and Weird are probably the two closest, and mm -hmm. both of those have a lot of limitations as far as scalability goes. Right. Um, Kingdom Death obviously has a huge assembly nightmare where they're very difficult to put together. Uh, and are often very fiddly and small. Kingdom Death has a very weird aesthetic to it, yes. uh, where not everybody is, that's not everyone's cup of tea. But they're the two I can think of that are close. Right. As far as the quality of the plastic that's miniatures that are coming out, for sure. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. But a Malifaux makes me want to throw things out the window when I try to put a figure together. <laughs> so fiddly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, you but, know, both of them charge pretty similar prices. It's not that far off, right? No, you're absolutely right. You know, it's something that definitely we've seen. It's really, I don't know... It's price inelastic, almost price inelastic in the sense that no matter how much they charge for the product, people still buy it. They may, you know, complain about it, but it's still, they're not losing any profits off of it. You know what I mean? And people are still purchasing the products. Sure. Well, on one hand, it is a luxury good. Sure. Right. Like we are, we are not talking about a, a, a you know, a necessary uh, good here. Right. Right. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So this isn't corn. Or uh, wheat, <laughs> or orange juice, or something okay, like that. Okay, I'm sorry. That, right? that was that was corn with a C, not with a K. Okay, just making sure. Yeah, yeah, with a C, yes. <laughs> um, so you know, I mean, like, so the pricing does move more independently because it is a luxury good, right? Uh, and luxury goods tend to be, uh, depending on what they are and where they sit on the price curve, if they're niche enough or high enough on the price curve they can actually be rather things like recession proof because they're sort of they tend to they tend to be purchased by people who aren't as heavily affected by uh economic downturns and things like that right right 
uh, so there's all sorts of like different economic theories behind this as to as to what can be going on there. But my argument would ultimately be it. It's actually pretty simple. Uh, like we can talk about all the complexities of this, like how the molds that GW uses are crazy expensive, you know, often well into the six figures for a single mold. Right. Right. And so we can talk about stuff like that, how how nutso all those costs are that they have. We can talk about how their product is either equal to or the highest quality on the market. But ultimately, I think it's this. Um, their models look really cool. And as they have slightly moved the price up to basically keep, keep pace with inflation, people have only continued to or expanded their purchase of it. And there you go. So if you're selling more as you slightly basically hold your price steady or slightly increase it, that's a successful price curve. Like you're where you want to be, right? Because technically, if you move your price up, you should see sales go down, but overall profit kind of remain neutral is the idea, right? Right. You get to the dumbbell point on the pricing curve, right? You could be a luxury good that sells a few at a high margin, or you could be a cheap good that sells a lot at a low margin. You actually end up with the same revenue, right? Absolutely. Uh, and what I think they found is that they can actually be, they can kind of win because they mm -hmm. can move their price up slightly and sell more. Uh, <laughs> because they were probably actually, and I know this is going to hurt to say, but they were probably actually a little under what the market would tolerate. Right. Oh, no, absolutely. If people if, if they increase the price and people increase their purchases, they were certainly undercharging what the market would allow. You know, absolutely. And yeah, and I mean, it's important to say here that we're talking about in the aggregate. That doesn't right. mean that like <clears throat> you particular Sally or Johnny listening to this who find these kits very expensive, as certainly I did when I was a, you know, poor college student who couldn't afford any of this stuff and was trying to get everything secondhand and scraping and saving, you know, to buy anything like I get it right. It doesn't that doesn't mean that it's suddenly uh, that, that it's suddenly better for everyone. But the point is, is that there's still a bigger market out there that apparently is willing to pay that higher price than isn't. That's kind of what it boils down to. Now, I think if we we're going to look at our crystal ball and say, what's the future portent? Uh, well, it could th the future could have some significant downward pricing pressures, depending on what ends up happening with 3D printers, especially resin 3D printers and those kinds of high HD uh, printing beds being integrated and stuff like that. That could have downward pressure, right? I was actually, you like, that's a crystal, you have the crystal ball because that actually was kind of the next avenue I was going to go to was what do you think future-wise, do you think things like 3D printing, uh, in any other anybody entering in any other entrance into the to the market etc would cause a downward pressure and yeah the downward pressure on the prices so <laughs> well, well done there sir well done predicting <laughs> i mean the answer's got to be yes right it mm -hmm. cannot be no that doesn't mean by the way that that market goes away it just means that like that we have to accept that there will be a commoditization and a downward pressure on it but that doesn't mean it goes away completely um h&m makes knockoff fashions that they sell for dollars and, and and that you know that that those clothes disintegrate after like they get rained on once or get wet once right 
Right. <laughs> but high fashion is still a thing. It's still there are still designers who make a lot of money to make high fashion goods because ultimately the design matters. The actual input matters. And what that market eventually looks like uh, five years from now, 10 years from now, what it actually looks like to buy miniatures from them. Uh, I don't know. It could be that you buy STL files and print them yourself. It could be that that's an option they have. That when you buy the fig, you also get a locked version of the STL file or something. You know, who knows? Right? This, that this would be could, interesting. That it, would be very interesting. <laughs> yeah, so you could, like, print more of it yourself or something. Like, you by buying the one copy, you also gain the sort of digital rights, as it were, to, to reproduce it for yourself only. I don't know. I, I don't know what the world looks like. And I would I would challenge anybody who says they think they've got a good handle on it. It's there's going to be innovators and there's going to be challengers like any market like that. Right. And it's then it's a question of how do the big dogs react? Uh, if the big dogs react well and don't bury their head in the sand, then they can retain their market position and stay uh, around. Right. Uh, Microsoft's been Microsoft for a long time because every time somebody came up and challenged it, they reacted and didn't bury their head and didn't say that's not a thing. Uh, instead, they made their own version of it and right. rode the trends, right? They made their Xbox. They made their Surface. They made their whatever. Right. Some of those things failed along the way, but for the most part, they're still around and the operating system's still king. Um, you know, but Blockbuster isn't around. Right. right? Yeah. Um, now, so, have you ventured into 3D printing at all yourself? No, I have, I have zero desire to. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, no. You and you and I are on the same page. My co-host went down the rabbit hole and bought bought a 3D printer. We haven't heard from him since. No. <laughs> yeah, I mean but. the answer is pretty simple to me. I don't grow my own food. I don't knit my own clothes. Um that's not how the economy works, right? Like somebody else does something at scale and can produce it at a low enough cost. That they can do it cheaper than what I can do it alone, right? Now, that's generally the thing that's going to happen. The question right. is, is that what happens here, right? You know, I, and that's something, too. I thought I was like, is this going to be just a fad? But every time I turn around, the the prices of 3D printers keep dropping, like, and substantially. And oh, so it will I not be a fad. This is absolutely the future. We will all have 3D printers of some kind in our homes eventually, eventually, because it's simply too useful. It can do too many things. Like eventually, if you can 3D print food or stuff like that, you know, that's just going to be an absolutely uh, uh, essential thing. Uh, but uh, that's we don't need to go super futuristic on this. It's a Star Trek replicator, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, effectively. And there's there's no reason to think that that's not the world in 10 or 20 years. Um, it's not. The replicator is theoretically working from like energy molecules or something like that, right? To just sort of sure. make matter. Uh, whereas like 3D printing would mean like you just have basic proteins or food-like substances that it then extrudes into uh, something that feels like food or looks like food. Um, <laughs> didn't say it'll be delicious, but it'll happen. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, but anyway, uh, you know, like I, again, that's probably off topic. My That's point okay. is that I don't I don't know what it's going to look like. I think that there are going to be a lot of different market pressures going on. 
that the bar to becoming a miniature cre- a miniatures creator is getting lower. What I mean by that is the software you need, the tools you need, the learning you need, all right? Everything you need to create miniatures <clears throat> has right now a downward cost pressure. Software is getting cheaper, learning, knowledge, education is getting cheaper, output, creation is getting cheaper. When that happens, you cannot help but have a flood of competition into a marketplace. And eventually, a flood of competition into a marketplace will put downward pressure on the price of those participating in it. Right? That's just sort of the inevitability of it. So. And and the the weak are going to get herded out, you know, they'll 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 die out quickly. Um which is a, an interesting thing too. Unless the bar is so low, you, you say that, but that's not necessarily <laughs> true. That was true of <clears throat> that's true if you're like a restaurateur, right? Because it costs lots of money to get the building, to hire everybody, to install the ovens, to do all that, whatever, right? But the actual better comparison is publishing, okay? Because publishing already had this revolution ten years ago. Mike, if you want to print and publish a book. I can show you how you can do it tomorrow. Tomorrow. We can have it out there. We can have your book ready to go. Anybody, anywhere in the world, on Amazon, on anywhere else you want it to be, for sale, for anybody who wants to buy it. We don't need an agent. You don't need anybody. Now, is it going to be as successful as if you have a full you know, publishing house doing a huge marketing push for you and getting it in bookstores and stuff like that? No, probably not. You're going to have to hustle, hustle, hustle. But you can't fail out of being a publisher anymore, out of being an author. You can't do it. The bar is zero dollars, right? Like, or or very close to it. It's, you know, a computer and a few basic programs. And you can write books forever and get them published. That's it. There's no more failing out of the market anymore, right? You could be the next Chuck Tingle. Uh, It could happen to you. Uh, but the, and the point is miniatures, if all this stuff keeps getting low enough, that'll be the same thing, right? Like, sure. There'll be a, there'll be a few big publishing houses, full-fledged companies making serious pushes with big miniature ranges and lots of stuff like that. Right. Mm-hmm. But there could be thousands and thousands and thousands of like little boutique shops that release a couple figs a year, you know, at some kind of scale. And right. and that that's just gonna and that could be the world. Once that's happening, you're gonna see like miniature market aggregator sites on a bigger area than you already do. Like right now, you've got places like Mr. Lee's Minis and things like that that, that gather together smaller boutique miniatures into one place. You'll mm-hmm. see even bigger aggregators. And you're already seeing that to a point with things like Shapeways and stuff like that, right? Where they aggregate together STL files and 3D prints. Mm-hmm. This will be the sort of next evolution of that. I said, I think also you're, you're starting to see more of it on Patreon too, like things, places like Patreon and Kickstarter and all those that were typically the home of, uh, you know, printed miniatures are now seeing people doing STL files only, et cetera. So I think, yeah, I mean, w- w- the aggregate sites, I, I think you're right. They're coming. There's, there's already like Thingverse and uh, mini, my mini factory is one that's out there for SDL files, I guess is what Dan keeps telling me about. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're definitely on the money with that for sure. But, uh, right. 
Uh, so I know I know you're not feeling well and that you didn't want to do a ton of time. Uh, so I, look, I have a couple of kind of the ending questions for you if you're cool with that. Rapid fire them out. All right. Well, so of all the miniatures that are out there, are, are is there a model that hasn't been made that you would like to see made? And I always use the example of uh, miniatures from the Dark Tower Stephen King series. I would love to see miniatures done, like maybe even in the Jay Lee art style from the graphic novels. Um, but is there anything out there that you'd like to see? Two answers. Three answers. One, much wider array of cyberpunk miniatures. There's almost none out there. Just a very low number. I mean, real, hardcore, Shadowrun, Neuromancer, 80s, cyberpunk. That's answer number one. Answer number two. Uh, and by the way, this is going to sound ironic, but Battletech mechs. Look, I understand there's like years of Iron Wind or whatever doing metal mechs, and there's the new plastic range. None of those are interesting to me. None of those. I don't want inch high Battletech mechs. That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Battletech mechs are like giant vehicle monstrosity cool things. How do we not have Gundams for them like there are Gundams for Gundam? Okay? How have we gone so wrong here in America? Uh, Gundams are sweet and look cool. And like every single show that has a big robot Gundam thing in Japan has a me- has a model kit that's like full size and massive and big <coughs> and fun to paint. How come I don't have an Atlas or a Mad Cat, right? Or a Black Knight or a Flea or whatever? It makes no sense to me. Why are we playing with inch tall mechs? Get out of here. I want Imperial Knight sized mechs. Okay. I mean, this is just like, this is slam dunk territory. I know two exist, by the way, because they were three up models made right. for the original casts. I've seen two of them out there. If you if you know where any of these three ups are, contact me immediately. I have I want one of them more than anything. If anybody knows where a three up black knight is, I will. There is there is nothing I will not do to get that. All right. Anyway, so that's number two. Well, Dan, I'm gonna say Dan isn't on the interview, but he just screamed Amen. He's a huge BattleTech person. And he wants big mechs too, so he's yeah, right there good. with you. Good. Thank you. He is a man of. I can tell he's a man of class and character. Uh, (laughs) three um uh more giants we're getting more giants soon i want more in different types of giants so there you go nice nice now the one of the other things i like to ask too is um i typically ask if there's a color like what would the if let's say Jason from Slow Fuse came to you and said, "Hey, I want to make a Vince Venturella paint. What color would it be, and what would you name it?" Oh God, I don't know. Uh, I would want a lightning race hot pink, and I would name it Vince's Pink. I named my YouTube channel my name. Right. So I don't. <laughs> clever names are not my thing. That's okay. That's no, no, no worries. No worries. And the last, the last thing we ask is the motto of the podcast is better, braver, and happier. Uh, is there any parting advice that you could give to our listeners as they continue on that journey? Fail a lot. You will, you cannot do a better service to yourself than failing. It sucks to fail. It hurts to fail and it, nothing will teach you more. Uh, the more you fail, the better you will be. 
the more you retreat to, to complete safety and avoid failure because it hurts, that you avoid the sting, uh, the less you will progress. Uh, but if you fail and you get feedback and you talk to people and you trust others and you trust the process and you continue that deliberate practice, you will improve, you will become happier and you will be amazed with what you achieve. Uh, and you will be able to uh, conjure what is in your image, what's in your mind's eye uh, in a way that that uh, is more in the real world, in a better matching way in the real world, uh, which I think is what we're all on about. We all want to be able to paint in reality what we see in our mind. And that's how you get there. Cool. You know what? I do have one other question. I apologize for calling an audible here. And I was wondering, this is something I recently just started doing. Um, I've kind of been watching like other types of artistic avenues like i've been watching oil painters paint on youtube and kind of even acrylic i've watched some acrylic pores do you kind of venture outside the miniature painting world when you watch videos as far as art goes or yes 100 percent. watch makeup contour videos that's another good one car detailing tutorials that's another good one makeup contouring by the way is the best if you want to learn how to paint faces go watch women teach you how to contour uh i guarantee you you will learn more in and an hour of watching those videos than you will in a hundred hours of watching miniature painting videos, because you will understand the fundamentals of how you reshape a face through light and shadow. Those women are magical. They are sorcerous sorcerers. So, so do that. Uh, and then obviously, yes, uh, I like oil painting videos a lot. Uh, I think that those are great because they explain a lot of good color theory to you because they're usually mixing from a relatively limited set of colors and they'll teach you more how to rely on, on colors to do things rather than whites and blacks they'll they'll use true hues and how you mix those together well awesome uh, the thing i wanted to make sure that i say to you is thank you so much for all the content and all the hard work you put in all of it's for free and it's all out there for everybody to use and you're somebody who's been an, an amazing part of the community and definitely somebody who has uh impacted and influenced my painting and i appreciate you very much well, thank you very much, sir. I appreciate it. I appreciate you very much having me on. It's been a great time. So, uh, yeah, thanks a lot, man. It's great. Right. Thank you. I hope you feel better, man. I, I hear it in your voice. You're kind of going in and out a little bit, so I don't want to keep you any much lo any longer. But do feel better. Uh, and, uh, I'll get there. Don't worry. Uh, this will probably be out on uh, the Friday or the latest on Monday, uh, just if I can get Dan in the studio to record with me. <laughs> Perfect. Other, Sounds good, but, brother. But otherwise, just just yeah. ping me when it comes out, and I'll give it a shout-out on the show. Oh, thank you. And again, man, thank you so much for taking the time with this. I really appreciate it. You know, you're awesome, dude. Hey, I'm happy to do so, buddy, and I'm sorry I'm not going to get to see it Nova this year, but yeah, here's for 2021, man. I did have you. I, I was in two classes, so I was like, damn it. <laughs> I was going to do, do your battle damage class, and I was going to do your freehand class again because I wanted to try something different than a flame. <laughs> we'll we'll do it was, again. I kind of wussed out. 2021. That's, that's right. There you go. All right, sir. Well, I'm going to talk to you later on. You take right. care. Take care. Bye-bye. Take it easy, Mike. Bye. Dan and I would like to thank Vince Venturella for joining us today. It was such an educational and fun interview. Uh, we hope to have him back sometime in the near future. Go to his YouTube channel and find his page. Hit subscribe and also hit the notification button so you don't miss a video. His uh, hobby cheating series is particularly amazing, although I do enjoy all the videos that he produces. So go ahead, give him a like, and subscribe. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Listening to Paint Dry or Twitter at Dry Painting. 
like, follow, or subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts from. If you could leave us a positive review, we would be greatly appreciative. And also, if you could spread a word about the podcast, we would also be thankful for you to do that, too. In order to become a better, braver, and happier painter, you have to fail, and you have to fail hard. Until next time. Listening to Paint Dry with Mike and Dan is a production of LTPTWMD. All rights reserved. No portion of this recording may be used without the express written consent of the host. The music is Death by a Thousand Questions by Springtide. Download from the free music archive on a non-commercial attribution share alike basis. All views and opinions expressed in the show are solely the views and opinions of the person who said them. All celebrity voices, if any, were impersonated and done so poorly.